welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Last podcast. Rick Roberts here. Today I'm talking with Max Winfrey, a stunt comedian. He does dangerous things in front of people and is funny while he's doing it. That's going to be up in just a second. I want to thank our Patreon supporter for this episode is K. Dodd. Thanks for the support for this episode. If you'd like to join in supporting us with a small monthly donation, feel free to jump on to schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N and you can learn more about how to do that. Got a lot of good stuff going on today, and uh, Max is a guy that I met at the uh, Christian Comedy Association a while back. He's been a guest on the Huckabee Show, where I am part of the uh, in-house warm-up comedian crew, and he's a a fun guy. He's going to give us some insight into his days. Some people he met early on, like Penn and Teller, that gave him uh, a little bit of advice, and that he got to watch uh, go ahead and go on to superstardom. All those kinds of cool things coming up in a second. So uh, I want to make sure you you know what's on the agenda for today. Hey, if you are in the Club 52 group, I want to let you know we have our big quarterly meetup coming up. It's on Saturday. If you're listening to this on day of release or week of release, it's on Saturday, July 20th. It'll be at 11 a.m. Central Time, and you'll get an invitation to that as it gets a little closer. But put it on your calendar, Club 52. All those folks that reward uh, the podcast by sponsoring it, I'd like to give back, have a little fun, do a little mini meetup online with my Club 52 peeps. So we'll do that on July 20th. Other than that, let's get right into this episode. I'll talk to you on the backside and let you know about other things going on, all School of Laughs. Here we go. Max Winfrey, stunt comedian. Well, I'm sitting across from a good buddy, Max Winfrey. Max, how's it going? Great, man. Rick, it's so good to be with you, buddy. I was excited that you're in Nashville doing a, uh, I wouldn't call it a corporate event, but a private event. And you said, hey, I'm going to be in town. I'm like, thank goodness I can talk to another person in the business for a while and have some fun, plus just get get to know you better. For people that don't know Max Winfrey, I, I can only describe you as what I've seen and you describe yourself as a stunt comedian. Yeah, I just, I don't know what to say. Well, I, I don't know. What to you're say. different. Um, you're unique. But there's comedy. We're familiar with the comedy part. So right. like it all works together. But. A typical show, tell tell them what kind of things you might be doing on Well, stage. I use a lot of circus arts. I do knife throwing, a lot of juggling, balancing, unicycling, physical stuff. Danger appeals to people, um, but a lot of improv. So I'm bringing people on stage. I set psychological traps, and the way they react in those situations is the way the comedy goes a lot of times. So uh, I street performed early on in, in my career, and that was a great training ground. You never know what's going to happen, and it's kind of influenced my comedy to go in those directions of surprise and um, outrageous. And um, the unexpected, I, I welcome all of that, and I try to be good on my feet. So um, it, it's, it keeps it interesting for me because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what these people are going to do. And, and, uh, I, there's no, nobody's barred from coming on stage with me. I bring people up with disabilities. A lot of people won't bring someone up like that because they think, you know, 
that there, something could unfortunate could happen. Right. What I've realized is these people are funny and talented, just like an able-bodied person would sure. be. And, um, and it's led to some crazy, crazy things over the years. I've seen, I've seen people from the audience walk up on stage in the show, get used by me on stage. It worked out great. And they get a standing ovation as they walk back into the crowd. Right. And standing ovation for a person who was unexpected right. from the audience to come up and, and be in the show. Never met him before. Don't know who they are. They just killed. Isn't that great you know? to be the facilitator yeah. of that experience? And and with able-bodied or disabled all across the board, I, and I would think probably even, even more for the people that are disabled that don't get called on for things because people don't know how to interact with them or, you know, to, to get that chance to get recognized as just a human that did something very cool. That's got to be one of the top memories they have in their life. Wouldn't you yes. think? Like, I would think so. Well, you see people kind of take the baton mm-hmm. sometimes and they'll run with it. When they get that laugh, I had a, a, a young lady with Down syndrome come up on a show once and it was a dinner show and, and, uh, I was probably doing 35 minutes and brought her up and, uh, I, I, I try to make people look good. It doesn't right. matter. I give them opportunities and whatever they do, I try to make them shine where it looks like they're upstaging me. Yes. Sometimes I even yes. visually get upset that they're stealing the show, act angry. Right. And uh, this young lady saw her opportunity. She walked through the doors that I opened for her, and man, she killed. She started getting really mischievous and yeah. running around and inventing <laughs> her own and, you know, you always worry about if they're going to try too hard or, right, you know, right. go overboard. But the crowd was just eating her up. Yeah, and you just have to sit and, there and uh, love it. I'll never forget this young lady. I wish I got her information and I could uh, keep in touch. Just magical moment. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty amazing. And you, I'll get, there's so many questions I got for you. But before I get to the, the practicing and get developing the skills of all those different things you do, which I know takes a lot of time, you talked about street performing early on. So I always like to find out what was that moment in your life where you did your first thing to get the reaction that you kept on doing? Like, hmm. was it were you back in elementary school or was it high school or what I point did you do something? In school, I liked I liked the um, getting laughs in the classroom setting, mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't like I didn't want to be the one that was always talking or trying to cause a a stir right. and get attention. I I really I didn't the attention was okay. But I wanted like the laugh at the opportune moment. Mm -hmm. And so when I started juggling and learning how to do those kind of things, I kind of put the two together and I saw a guy at a theme park that that uh, that did a great juggling show. And when I was a kid, I was a big fan of the Globetrotters. Oh, the yeah. Harlem Globetrotters. Oh, they were they were the the heroes to me. Metal Arc Lim- how they, all- they could do all of these amazing skills. But yet their main focus was making people laugh and entertaining them. I thought, wow, that's so cool. So when I saw a juggler at a theme park, I thought, well, that's kind of like being a Harlem Globetrotter. Maybe I could do that. So I learned how to juggle at camp. Mm-hmm. What and, kind of camp uh, was it? It like? was like a it was like a leadership camp, uh-huh. I think, for for one of the clubs in high school. They send you off in the summertime, like mm-hmm. two weeks for training, and, and you learn how to be like a officer in the club or whatever. And uh, they they took us on a day outing to a theme park. I saw this juggler, and uh, I said, man, I got to learn how to juggle. So I learned how to juggle while I was at the camp. And at the end of the two weeks, I did a little thing in the talent show. Quick learner, Max. And No, no. (laughs) But I did a little something, and Uh it got a response, and then I was hooked. So 
two years later, I had a job at another theme park. Can you believe that? That's pretty quick turnaround. The, yeah, they. I shouldn't probably have gotten the job. It's probably a God thing, but yeah. <laughs> uh, once I got the job, then I learned pretty fast. It was a great training ground. I was doing like six shows a day. And uh, was was this the Disney Street performance? This thing, was or? actually a, 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 a theme park called Kings Dominion in Virginia. Yeah. And uh, so I had been getting asked to do some shows around the community just for fun. I did some school talent shows and they went well. And uh, so I had a, an next door neighbor that said, uh, Max, you should go audition for this theme park. They're having auditions this weekend. And I'm like, nah, I'm not ready for that. But he kept begging me on. And so I went to the audition. It went well. Didn't hear anything back. And uh, as a matter of fact, my parents didn't really want me to audition. My dad didn't want me to audition. And my mom told this story a couple of years ago. She said, uh, you know, I helped Max get his start in show business. So I'm standing here listening to my mom tell this story to people that had watched my show. I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be good. I've never heard this shit. <laughs> Max's father didn't want him to go to the audition for the theme park. And I had to convince him. So I told him, oh, let him go audition. He'll never get the job. Oh, so <laughs> Mom! <laughs> That's great. true story. Yeah, that's great. So she and did so, help. But yeah, she kind of helped. You know, it's well, not she good. also helped by not telling you that she didn't think you'd be able to pull it off. Because yeah, that's, um, that's the thing. As a parent, you don't know. Like you have hopes and dreams and ideas for your kids, but the the real fun is seeing them do stuff you didn't think they would do. Yeah. So yeah. you know. Well, she was she was very supportive. She helped make some of my props and costumes and things early on, and um, I think yeah, that was kind of. Maybe she knew I wanted to do it. Maybe she knew I'd be good at it. And, and she kind of did what she had to do. Because my dad was kind of a taskmaster. He was uh, believed in hard work. And, you know, uh, he, he supported me after that. But uh, just the initial going and having fun for a job did not appeal to him. Yeah. It was too much like uh, play. Right. You know? Yeah. And the assumption that it was all going to be fun and games. Yeah. I, mean, I wish everybody could do two different. There's two jobs I wish everybody could do. Or at least try once. And that is stand-up comedy in some form and working on a tobacco farm because <laughs> those are the two extremes of people thinking what's hard and what's easy and that you know those are two experiences that i've been lucky enough to have so i can always appreciate true hard work the tobacco fields the cotton fields that Rick, kind of stuff all the way to i'm so lucky i know believe it or not this is going to be crazy that you and i have this in common but when I was in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I worked for a truck farmer. My dad, it was members of our church, and he needed some help, and he didn't have the money to pay, you know, adult labor. Mm -hmm. So he asked my dad. He knew that, that my dad worked us and, and uh, that we could take it. And so we were out in the fields like migrant farm workers. We were out there. There was one field we picked every couple days. It was a 1,000 tomato plants. <sighs> we would pick... 50 bushels of tomatoes and put them in the back of a pickup truck that had the raised wooden yeah, yeah, sides yeah. over the cab. Man, everything since then seems like great. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, like I was in a factory. I did factory work a year out of high school and it was pretty dangerous. You know, there was times when I could I almost lost my foot the first day oh. on the job. Uh, lady was distracted running the machine. and But yeah, I mean, so even like every job I've ever had, since that job, I kind of laugh because yeah, yeah, I'd done that. Right, yeah. The <laughs> so like any kind of hard work, uh, yeah, what? Bring it on, you know. Yeah, that's what it is. A nice thing to have is it kind of like your barometer 
for what you know what is truly hard because yeah. we're blessed to be able to do stuff we love right. to do and 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 on top of that people love us back for doing what we do when we do it right or or the, the right kind of people <laughs> a farmer god bless them they don't get that pat on the back in fact they get trouble from the government and everything else to do their own to do the hardest job on the planet which is feed the planet yes they get totally underappreciated totally underappreciated i mean there's subsidies and things but not always and Gosh, yeah, I, it is. I I look at what he did. That that man uh, really had. Uh, I think he had a nervous breakdown like a few years later. Um, I don't know. He had some other businesses and things. I'm not sure exactly because I was just a kid at the time. I didn't get all the details. Yeah. But um, he was an, a really nice man. But I think he did. He had. You know, it was it was really hard. You know, that's a hard hard life. And I think he was um, in a lease in the land that he worked and whatnot. Yeah. He had a roadside stand to take care of and. Did you ever have a time on stage where a tomato came at you and you thought, that's that <laughs> farmer trying to say hello? <laughs> like, you could have nightmares about tomatoes in two different ways. <laughs> we were talking earlier. I told you I was going to tell the story of uh, one of the top 10 moments on stage was actually a street performing show. This was back early, probably late 80s, late 80s. And uh, I was doing a show and I noticed I had a heckler lady in the front row with kind of a floppy hat and she was drunk. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's yelling stuff out. I'm, I have to acknowledge because she's right there in the front and she, everybody can hear her. And so um, I'm kind of shooting some lines back, trying to keep her in her place and make it funny, whatever she's doing. And uh, so at the end of my act, I would get on a tall unicycle and I would get up over the crowd where they could see me and hear me really well for the money pitch. Mm-hmm. And I would juggle torches while I was on the tall unicycle. So I light the torches and I, I yell over at the lady, ma'am, Please don't breathe near the torches. Right. Like that. Right. And and it gets a big laugh. And when I said it, I kind of winced like I'm scared of her. Wow. She rushes me. Oh no. Comes up there. And I'm, you know, I'm on a six foot unicycle and my character was to ride out of control. And so I'm barely look like I can stay on the thing. Uh-huh. I've got torches. She comes right at me and she's got a purse on a strap. And mm. she rears back and nails me with the purse. And I, I'm running from her on the unicycle, riding, still out of control in character, and she's smacking me with this purse in the back, and it's really funny. I mean, the audience is on the, the floor, right? It's I mean, either part of the gig it's, or... Yeah, they probably think she's in on it, but it's so funny that, you know, and I'm all about the laughs. I'm <laughs> right. like, whatever. I was, you know, it's just about the laughs. I don't care what we're doing. It's just about getting... I want knockdown, drag out right. laughter. Well, the husband who had been quiet the whole show standing beside her he had this big cowboy hat on and he hadn't said a word well on one of our passes he joins in the comedy train and he's chasing her and he took took off his cowboy hat he's smacking her in the back with the cowboy (laughs) hat and she just keeps smacking me with the purse and we're going around and around i mean it's crazy right you can't write that no you couldn't train people yeah the timing is real because it's real exactly and i'm and it just you know we ended the show, and I just remember thinking, how will I ever top this moment <laughs> right. comedically the rest of my life? <laughs> and I got to ask, so you mentioned the money pitch, so you were performing for tips in that right. particular situation. Right. So did you get nice tips, or were people like... I don't even remember that show. That was, you know, they were always pretty consistent. I mean, you'd have your highs and your lows, Yeah. But you kind of knew what you're going to make. In fact, I, I would keep records for the taxes and sure. all. I would keep records of what I made on any particular 
night and I could look back on calendars and see what, like this year, what should I expect mm-hmm. to make on this night? Because they were kind of similar. Yeah. Even though you have good and bad nights, you'd still like the time of year, you'd know what you're going to make. Right. Yeah. So you started, what year was it that you started? Because you're talking about doing gigs oh, quite a while um, back. Well, 1981, I started part-time in the theme park. Okay. I was 16, believe it or not. Man. Those were the days. In the Reagan administration. <laughs> yeah, trickle-down comedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time. Yeah. I started a decade later than you, 10 years later, in 91. I should be so much better now. <laughs> This is really convicting, this conversation. Uh, we'll figure out a few things for sure. So 81, and then, and so it's juggling to start with. Unicycles came a little bit after yes. that. Like, tell me about the progression of, of adding stuff to your act. Well, you get in front of a crowd, and street performing, you realize real fast, this is not a captive audience. These people have plenty of other places to be mm-hmm. and to stop and watch you. So you're trying to do things that really will wow them and go, wow, I haven't seen that. So I, I kind of gravitated towards unusual objects. Um, one of the things people used to say is you, you juggle everything, but the kitchen sink. And I, I finally, it like dawned on me. I'm like, you're right. I don't do a kitchen sink. The kitchen sink is in the act. Yeah. Yeah. Right <laughs> now. So yeah. Listen to your customer. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I just found out that, uh, they like danger and they like the outrageous, the, you want to surprise them. And, um, so yeah, it's been fun. I, I was thinking the other day about the inventing process. Some, some of the things are that I do had to be engineered Mm -hmm. to get away. And I've got a, uh, a company in town, Florida Metalcraft that near my house and they're great guys. I've known a long time. They've figured out how to solve some of the things that I wanted to build or create. And, um, it's cool when you think of something and you're like wondering physically, uh-huh. is it, is it the, the physics work? And then you see it come to fruition and it actually works. And then it has the, like you're, you're talking, you know, writing jokes. You want to know is the payoff, was the laugh going to be worth all the effort yeah. of right. honing it? And then when you hear that big laugh and you're like, yeah, the engineering worked. Well, let, let me ask you about this gig you're doing tomorrow. Uh, you perform for all, I mean, there's no group you can't perform for really. Yeah. I mean, physical comedy can reach just about anybody. And so, and you can, you you know, you get in a comedy club, you can do a little bit more with the comedy Mm -hmm. than some other places in different age groups. But, um, man, I, I just, everybody likes to laugh and, you know, with the physical stuff, you can get just about anybody with it. I remember I was on a cruise one time and they dismissed a lot of the regular entertainment because they had a big, um, uh, group coming on from India. So language, They they were, yeah, well, they spoke English. They were all doctors, and it was their families, and they rented out the whole cruise ship. And uh, But they, they kept a, a few of the acts. Like I remember the Legends in Concert was one contract they had. They had uh, like an Elvis and uh-huh. a Marilyn Monroe and some maybe a Madonna or something. And so they would come out and do their act, and then another night I would come out and do my act, and maybe they'd, they'd have something else. Maybe they brought in some of their own entertainment as well. Yeah. But um, I remember they they had me stay as one of the acts that they kept on for the cruise. And it was, you know, nerve-wracking to think, how is this going to go? You don't know, you know. And then I remember it went pretty well. But then, like, uh, 
you you come and watch the legends in concert people and the madonna comes out they just go crazy dead silence oh dead silence <laughs> dead silence. it's like it's too you know too risque like yeah you can't be wearing yeah. madonna costume if you're that's not they prefer like a surgeon to like a virgin and, you know <laughs> more conservative dress and yeah but um that's interesting, interesting. yeah but so so yeah i mean that that's and we were talking earlier that's what i really like about the physical stuff you do it so it's attainable it's receivable by the audience and even i don't know like so tomorrow you're doing a, a, an event at lipscomb university and it's going to be high school kids there i think so i yeah. think that's what they said and i think i did this a few years ago um, and and that that's a demographic that most yeah. stand up pure stand-ups who don't have the skill set that you have with all the different things you can do physically and all the like circus crafts or whatever you call them. Like, right. You know, if I would be terrified. It is. I mean, kids. And that's not, crazy. It drives me nuts that I can't we do that. We were talking about this earlier. I'm in my fifties. I'm mid fifties now. So I'm going to be 55 in, in November. And, um, I'm doing more youth events now. <laughs> I was like, why wasn't it, you know, I'm doing more earlier, but, um, I don't know. You just you get you get the time in. You you just you know how to read the crowd and I my act. I've kind of I always I always talk about comedy like we're hunters. We're walking through the the woods. We're waiting for the game to pop up. So we got to be ready. We got to be loaded and ready to go. And you never know, even in a bad room, a bad situation. If you're patient, that game might pop up. Mm-hmm. And some maybe something unexpected in the moment happens with the crowd, a noise, a person does something, someone walks in front of the stage. Whatever it is, you better be armed and ready because those opportunities come up, they will change the dynamic of the whole show. And maybe it's a callback, you can come back mm-hmm. to that. And um and it, it can just be it can turn out to be a great show. So just being able to walk up on stage with that attitude of patience, you know, confidence and determination that I'm going to make the best of this and I'm going to be ready if opportunities come. Yes. You know, being able to stay in the moment. Right. You've got you've got your act, you've got your skill set, but you've also got the the state of mind to be aware of where you're at right now. Right. To recognize those opportunities. It was that I assume something you kind of learned over time because as, as we first started, it's all about just getting to the next joke or the next trick or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely times when you're just kind of plowing and yeah. you're trying to get through to the goal line. Um, but I remember Seinfeld, I remember hearing him talk about it one time, even when it's not going well, like you're not getting the reaction you want, you're holding them. Like maybe you're trying new material. You're exuding confidence where you're, they're not seeing you sweat. They're not seeing you get impatient. You're, you you're, you know, you're going to get to some other stuff that probably works. You're putting it behind the new stuff or whatever. But you're still, you're holding them. You're holding their attention and you're commanding that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That takes, uh, it takes a certain amount of rep, reps on stage and a certain amount of mastering the skills to where those things are second nature. And you know, that's a give. hope, you know, mostly a given when you hit the stage that you can do those things. But it's in that third stage of performing where you're, you're, you, not only are you hoping for opportunities, but you, you, you start to develop ways to find them and create them too, right? Especially with we, what you do. We, I was thinking about this the other day too. 
I street performing was a great training ground for me, but in some ways it was um it was hard to get over the bad habits that happened as a result of street performing because you get on stage the people are seated there. They're they're not going anywhere. They're they're there to see you. They're there to watch. And if you're used to going like a million miles an hour on the street to keep their attention and get them mm-hmm. not to think about something else, to walk away, giving there's always the opportunity for them to walk away when they're on the street. And so just breaking that habit of going fast. Yeah. And doing having a dialogue with the audience is so important. You know, when you say something. We've heard the jokes over and over and we know the routines, but they're hearing the first time and they're kind of having to comprehend the picture that you're painting verbally. And so you have to give them time. And I've seen like the times that I've gone really slow and drawn out that it's been such a better reaction from the crowd because they're comprehending and they're going along at a Mm -hmm. pace that they can follow. And that's a hard lesson to and learn. And it's almost like I said, it's it's a it's a dialogue where you're kind of going back and forth. They're getting it in their mind, and then you're giving them something else, and they're reacting to that, mm-hmm. and they're kind of giving you the permission to go to the next place. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I describe it to my new students as when I see them rushing, you know, I say, you know, last minute's important, but it's not the only thing, and it's not how many jokes you put in the show; it's how many jokes in your show that they get. So if they're spending half their time trying to figure out what what was that before you know you're already on to the next joke, you're not really entertaining them. You're you're wowing them maybe with how many jokes yeah. you can tell. And I used to get the response after shows, that, you know, kind of in the middle of, of my comedy club days, like, how do you remember all those jokes? How many jokes did you tell up there? But nobody said those were great jokes. They just, mm. they were commenting on that they couldn't believe I talked so fast, and I, I'd be accused of not being from the south. I was one lady came up, she goes, "You're full of it." I'm like, what? She goes, you're full of, you're lying. I'm like, what am I lying about? She goes, you said you're from Kentucky and you live in Tennessee now. She's like, bull. You talk way too fast to be a southern. <laughs> and like, she could not get past. She's, in the first minute, she had already decided that I was a liar. So none of my jokes were based in reality, based, based upon that assumption from her. But it, it takes a while to kind of realize it's all about communicating and, and every audience is going to be a little different. Yes. The setup. So I would imagine not only were you speaking fast when you, we're kind of moving from street performing to stage performing in a club or what have you, but maybe aggressive. Like I, mm-hmm. I could see, and I know a couple of comics that are like this, that they've never shook that and they're kind of in your face, but it's like, Hey, they're already here. Yes. And there's a microphone now. You know, I heard Jay Leno say one time, and this always stuck with me. He was talking about making it in comedy, not, not about uh, money or status, but you've made it comedically when you can stand in in front of an audience like it's your living room Mm. and so when i walk up on stage now a lot of times i think about that maybe it's a pressure situation maybe there's tons of people up there maybe it's television there's a million reasons to be nervous to be scared to be thinking the worst could happen but you have got you have got to go up there with the attitude of those people sitting out there are my friends. We're going to have a good time and it's going to be great. Yeah. And so let's enjoy ourselves. Not just, I'm going to go up there and do this task. I'm going to take this mountain. We're right. going to take no prisoners. Right. I'm going to kill these people. You know, you yeah. can't, it's, it can't be like that. I did, uh, I did 90 minutes at a theater recently. 
and um, I, I, I usually the markets that I'm in, that's not. I'm not a one man show, or mm-hmm. I'm usually doing a after dinner thing, a cruise, uh, maybe working with a musical act or something where I'm doing 20, 45, whatever, an hour sometimes, mm-hmm. but never an hour and a half, right? And so I'm racking my brains like, how am I gonna? What am I gonna do? I, I'd like to even do a, a, you know, a, a costume change in the show. And they told me there's no intermission at this uh, performing arts theater, so I had a a video that I put on and I introduced and I went and did the costume change and came back and I thought, you know, you prove you're funny, you entertain them after a while. They want to know who you are, if -hmm. they're going to spend that much time with you. So I actually took a couple questions from the audience while I took a breather. I said, look, I've been going pretty hard. (laughs) And And so I have some great stories and, you know, so I worked some of that in there with the the questions that the people asked, and I, I was like trying to get over the fear of uh, I don't have to be funny every few seconds. I right. can I can share something, maybe a a message or whatever. And I do you you and I both do some speaking now in churches and mm-hmm. and faith based events. And I love I love doing that. I'll do you know twenty minutes of comedy and then I'll do 20 minutes of speaking and I'm very comfortable with that now. But, um, in the theater, I found out, you know, the people really enjoyed the times that, you know, the meaningful, you, yeah, times. the meaningful times that yeah. you're not actually trying to be getting a million laughs all the time. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's maturation there too. You know, it's just evolved. You've evolved as a performer to, you know, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast, but there's a, a term called the burden of expectation. And sometimes we put that out, and sometimes the audience puts that out. Mm-hmm. But once you resolve that burden and prove to them, or they accept from you, that you're able-bodied to entertain them, that's off the table, and you can you can have a deeper connection and not have to rush through things. Or you know you you've already won when you've already won them won them over. That's gone, and you can do stuff like you're saying. Like it would be hard to come out and open the show with a 20-minute right talk because yeah. you haven't won them over with the comedy. exactly. They don't know who you are, but you, you know. I worked, you're not going to believe this, but I worked with Penn and Teller before they were famous. I believe it. They just met and they were just starting to work together. They were each doing their own. He, Penn was doing his juggling. He was a great juggler. Came from the streets in San Francisco, a street performer. And uh, Teller was doing his silent magic and they were working together in Renaissance fairs. And that they came for a couple weeks, I think. I don't know if it was more than a couple of weeks, but it was in the middle of the summer when, and when I was working at the theme park in the first two summers I'd worked mm-hmm. there. And so I was hanging with Penn every time between shows and we were, you know, juggling and he was teaching me some things that he'd learned from being a street performer. And I was, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old. He's a little bit older than me, been around a lot. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, it was funny. They were like, we're going to be, Penn was saying, we're going to be big stars. And even back then, Teller wouldn't talk in front of me. He would talk. That's to hilarious. Penn. Yeah. It was very funny. And, uh, so yeah, we're going to be household names. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Could you show me the behind the back thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, uh, they, they did, they, they became these huge stars, household names. And I went to see them, uh, about a year ago, I guess I went to see them in Las Vegas and see their show and just kind of take in the theater experience. And I was like, so blown away. These guys are not trying to be funny. They're just entertaining and doing interesting tricks and pins up there doing these speeches and talking about, 
magic theory and human nature and right. this and that, but it was all very interesting, but it just showed me that I don't, I don't have to be funny every minute of a one hour yeah. show, you know? Yeah. Um, because you're holding them and you're entertaining them and you're in, you're interesting. Yeah. It, it makes you me know? think of, uh, I can't remember what, gosh, I can't remember a lot of things anymore, <laughs> but there's a, a point where you get, somebody needs to tap you on the shoulder and go, you've got the gig. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean, and it, and it's always better when somebody else tells you that than you say I got this down because then that's a whole different avenue that takes you down a path of not performing at your best. But the ex, the the qualification that we have to put on ourselves, you know, once once somebody goes, hey, you got the gig, do whatever you want. Man, that's I a, worked that's with a great this gift. Old school comic uh, on a cruise many years ago, and uh, he he walked out on stage and he he was he was very old at that time that he had the thick glasses. And he walked kind of like George Burns. He walked with a little bit of a stoop. And, you know, when he's walking out, he's our stand-up comedian. And people, the audience, there's like a murmur of the crowd. Like, oh. The people are thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't get hurt up there. I hope that, you know, people aren't going to laugh at him and boo him off the stage. And the orchestra back then, they'd have, the, you know, the big orchestras would be on the cruise and they'd be playing you on. So you'd come out to this big band sound that was great, right? Yeah. Great walkout music. And he comes out and gets to center stage and he's still walking by the band and he's like waving his arms out. He says, all right, guys, that's enough. You got the gig. <laughs> Great first laugh. Yeah. And then the audience knew like from the start, this guy's going to be funny. There's something to learn from every performer. I mean, the worst case scenario, you learn what not to do, <laughs> right? And the best case scenario, you're like, oh man, just the way they command the audience or, you know, or interact with the audience or pace the show. I mean, that's why I love comedy. There's, it's a never ending school of, of learning, you know? Oh, there's so many styles out there. There's so much to learn. And, but I always tell people, you got to figure out who you are and you got to, you know, find your voice and develop your own strengths. And a lot of times when you get around other performers and you want, you know, you have idols that you want to emulate or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, but you still got to do your own game. You got to be, and you hear those laughs. You got to listen to the audience. You'll hear when you're stumbling onto something, a direction that you should be going, mm -hmm. and you'll hear it from the crowd. Who Who are some of the people when you first started that you emulated or thought, I mean, I, I've said it before on the podcast, but man, I thought it was going to be Steve Martin for sure. Yeah. Not even close. Yes. Yeah. Um. Man, I, I I've got a lot of guys that, I really respect that I'm not like, but I just, I think of them in situations on stage. One of them, uh, Gary Shanley. I just, Oh really? I love Gary. You know, I loved him. Yeah. The way he was delivering and talking <laughs> to the audience and the self deprecating, I'm pretty self deprecating. And, um, yeah, I really liked him. Another one that's passed on is Richard Jenny. I mean, he not a clean guy, but, if you talk to any of the comics, they'll tell you he was the man. I yeah. mean, he was the one they all looked up to. I saw him twice live, and I'd never seen anybody pound something into the ground and keep going, and it'd get funnier. Absolutely. It was scary. When I saw him, I saw him in the right when the Gulf War happened, and he, remember Saddam Hussein's spokesman? He had the beret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, vaguely, and he vaguely. would always come on and, and act like, you yeah. know, 
the 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 Iraqis are winning. You know, yeah, they're yeah. just getting carpet bombed, and you know he's like ducking during his news conference, right. yeah, and he's like, we, "We are we are the mother of all," you know. And uh, Richard Jenny's on stage, and he sees somebody in the audience with a beret, and he grabs the beret, he puts it on, he becomes the the you yeah. know the spokesman for Saddam Hussein on stage, and it looked like a material, right. And at that point, I stopped laughing. Yeah, because you're and like, I'm I'm like shaking my head. And I'm going, this is scary. I know this is not a material because it's happening this week in the news. He's becoming this guy on stage, and he's destroying. Yeah, we should all quit. That's exactly right. <laughs> when I saw him too, and I saw yeah. him in the early '90s, doing a funny bone. I mean, he was a club comic, you know, and he, it was during the OJ trial. Oh man. So whatever year that was, and. At that point, every comic had an O.J. joke or an O.J. bit. Mm -hmm. He had an O.J. hour. Jeez. And he he did some – it was when the trial was going on, so they had gotten to that point. So there was all kinds of the – if the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit. All that stuff was Mm -hmm. kind of in the – but what I saw and what I took away from the the thing that I still remember to today is – so he goes to to being one of the lawyers who's trying O.J. Now, he's on the stage by himself. But he takes off his sports coat, puts it on the microphone stand, and puts it to the side like it's the jury. And so he's being the lawyer going to the jury with the facts. And he's looking – I mean, we all see, we all saw a person there, even though it was just Jack. And when he started talking to the judge, he moved it to the back of the stage and addressed the judge with his closing arguments. Wow. And it just – the whole time I'm like, he just brought another character on stage. Yeah. And made that part of the game, and I, and I was like you, I'm like, you know, I expected a five minute OJ. It was the entire show, and it was never not funny, and it was never not original. And he, yeah, he had so many gifts. I mean, he he was from another planet. I mean, as far as mm-hmm. I can tell, that's why I think a lot of comics just like he wasn't as famous as the other guys, but he was who the other comics would watch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he was scary. I mean. I, this one bit I really liked he did was, um, and I think a lot of comics have done the bit about your dad had it worse than you did. Yeah. When I was your age and he did that whole thing, but he, he took it like way and you'd be laughing. You'd think that, all right, the bit is over. It's gotta be done by now. And then he'd come out and he'd slap you around some more. And he had the, the finish to that was he would say, dad, why didn't you just leave? If things were so hard, why didn't you just leave? Because we had no arms and legs. That's why. Right. <laughs> You're like, man. And then, so at the end of these bits, he would get to the applause. I mean, people would be applauding because it's the end of the bit and it's like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. And then he would say, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your appreciation because when I was young, we had no way to show our appreciation Yeah, <laughs> because we had no arms and legs. We couldn't clap. Right. We had to bang our heads on the stump <laughs> in front of us to show the appreciation. Man, yeah. He, like, it's crazy. He's missed, Talent. man. He's one of those guys I know, that I saw this, early on and got to see live and got to talk to. and Yeah. You know, and, and he was... As good as he was, he was his own worst enemy, you yep. know, as well. Yeah, that's what brought him down. Some, some inner demons, that's for sure. But, Phenomenal. you know, he, you know, th- it just shows you, like, um, there's so many talented people, but they have problems, and and um, you got to you gotta have something else. I mean, I always tell people when, um, 
com- doing comedy and doing it well, figuring it out and putting your time in and doing it well and getting those laughs. When you hear that roar of laughter, it's it's addictive. You know, and you get off stage and that roar is not there and you're looking for the next fix. It can't be about that. You got to be you got to know who you are off stage. And I think that's a, l- a lot of people in comedy and in other performing arts are chasing that high and they don't know who they are off stage and they think that's their identity is that applause, that adulation, uh, the fans coming up to them. But there's got you got to be and I know you and I are kind of on the same page spiritually in what we believe. Um, and that fills me up. That's what, that's what fills me up. So I, I can, I can hear the roar of, a, of laughter. Right. And that's great. But when I'm off stage, I know that one day I'm gonna, not going to get back on the stage. It's going to end and there's going to be no more roar. And I got to be okay with that. Right. Yeah. And that's it. It's a peaceful place to be, and when you're when you're centered in something that's beyond yourself, it puts everything in perspective. The good times, the bad times, and then also I think realizing none of this would even happen if I didn't have the grace of God to right. to deliver. You know, to be in a position to entertain. He gives you these gifts. I remember I was on America's Got Talent. I was, I was 2011, and I got to I got through to the Vegas round, and I could tell they weren't interested in me. Like it, and my you know, dream was the yeah. wheels were coming off the, right. the, the unicycle. Train. Like it was, yeah, it's the unicycle. So to speak. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, so you're there a whole week and I saw like first day, uh, the cameras weren't really looking, follow me around. They're mm-hmm. following these kids over here, the, you know, these people, but they do come around and interview you once in a while just to cover everybody. Yeah. And, uh, I just remember thinking, you know, I'm not, I don't have much of a voice, after this, this is a, this is a pretty big, it's a top 10 show right. in the summer. I think it still is. There's a lot of people watching that thing. I found out later, but I thought, you know, what am I going to do when the camera comes to me knowing that this is pretty much going to be over on Saturday right. or whatever. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, I know what my message is. Everybody's all wrapped up in the the million dollar prize and they're wrapped up in uh, getting a Vegas show possibly, or, you know, the fame or whatever. But I thought to myself, the gifts have already been given out. The gifts are whatever the talent was that got you here and got you a shot at getting on the show. And I said, these people are going to, they're going to leave. Most everybody's going to leave here uh, a loser or you're not going to get much further. Right. You're going to go back home. You're going to go back to what you were doing. You're performing. But some of these people are not even professionals. They're amateurs. They're going to be going back to the hospitals. They're going to be entertaining the sick kids. They're going to be going to a nursing home and entertaining people that are lonely there. So they have these amazing gifts that they get to use and brighten people's day and make them laugh or entertain them or wow them. Those are the real prizes, and they've already been given out. So that's kind of the message I conveyed when the cameras came around to me for pretty much the last time. Uh, and I had, and I had a crowd, you know, whenever the cameras would come around, the, the crowd would come mm-hmm. uh, of other performers. Cause they wanted to see and hear what was going on and pay attention in case, you know. And, uh, so I know that there were a lot of other performers and then some of them came up to me at the end of the week and they said, man, I heard what you said right on. 
right on. And so you like you get these opportunities that come along and you you should think about what kind of influence you're going to have on people when it's your turn. Yeah. You know. That's that's not only sweet but it's it's such a peaceful thing that you just did there that I feel like I'm going to wrap up on that so, so, so that nothing else gets in the way of people remembering that from the podcast, you know. We all have a purpose and you you have to figure out what that purpose is and how are you going to use the limited time you're here? What are you going to do with it? I always say the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. You can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really solid, yeah. Max. I'm so glad I got a chance to hang out today. Rick, it's a pleasure, man. I, I, I just, I'm a big fan of yours and uh, I'm, I know it's recent. Our relationship is recent getting to know each other, but uh, I have so much respect for you and uh, I appreciate what you're doing for comedy. You're doing for people that are just getting in the business and people that have been around a long time like me. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks again, bud. There you have it. Max Winfrey, stunt comedian, delivers, delivers nuggets of wisdom and inspiration, as well as a dangerous and crazy show that he does, sometimes not even balanced, mostly unbalanced. That's how I'm going to call Max Winfrey from now on. Max, the unbalanced comedian. Although he's got balance. Somehow he pulls all that stuff off. Thanks again to K. Dodd for being our Patreon sponsor for this episode. If you are a member of Club 52, like K, you can join us in our quarterly meetup online July 20th. It's a Saturday. It'll be at 11 a.m. Central Time. I'll uh, send you an invite through our Club 52 email, and you'll know how to link in and get access to that online video chat. A very nice benefit for those that get to sponsor the podcast. Thank you all for doing that. Also, would like to say a quick thanks to a few folks who have left iTunes reviews. Uh, the first is from HD1816. This podcast is awesome. Stumbled across it and grateful I did. It's full of applicable advice. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, 8D1816. From Hold These, Please, Rick's podcast is such a wealth of information for any aspiring comedian. It covers almost every topic imaginable very thoroughly. Highly recommend. Another five-star one. Hey, thank you, too, for sending those in. And just a little reminder, if you have time and you've enjoyed the podcast, Maybe you don't have a dollar a month to sponsor it. An iTunes review goes a long way towards uh, keeping the momentum going and grabbing a few new listeners. All right, that's going to be it for now. Thanks again for uh, listening. Thanks again for sponsoring the podcast. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. See you then. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.